0: lots of frameworks out there there's the ones that people like this is the one that this is the one that i teach you always have to start with where they are yeah what is the problem what does it look like can you describe it to them better than they can themselves like oh how do you know
1: Welcome to Too Legitimate to Quit, instantly actionable small business strategies with a pop culture spin. I am your host, non-sleazy sales strategist and self-identified Muppet, Annie P. Ruggles. And my guest today is the incredible Danielle Weil, who I had the pleasure of spending multiple days with having great adventures at PodFest in Orlando. Danielle Weil is a copy and marketing strategist who helps expert business owners get the tools, resources, and confidence to own their voice in copy. She has been writing copy since 2006 for industry leaders like Ryan Levesque, Todd Herman, Marissa Murgatroyd, Selena Sue. Josh Turner, and more to the tune of over $100 million in sales. You can find Danielle on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and her newsletter at dwcopy.com. Danielle, you beautiful, brilliant genius. It has been an ordeal getting this thing scheduled. And that is all my fault. So thank you first and foremost for being super flexy, but I'm extra super excited to ask you the question. What do small business owners need to focus on this week? Your nurture sequence. Oh, you're talking to me now.
0: How many people? I wrote it once. I uploaded it and have not touched it since.
1: Or like me, and you know this because I told you this, you have an amazing two email ramp up that then just immediately dies. Like my nurture sequence is a, it's a nurture blip. It's not quite a sequence. It's a nurture oops. Uh, So yeah, in either of those iterations, either you set it and forget it and never check it and never iterate it. Or like me, you start Really beautifully. And then you just roller tycoon your people right off into the abyss of nothingness. Oh, gosh.
0: And it's because it's really important, but it's never urgent, right? If you do it once, it's there. It's not like, oh, this this thing is launching tomorrow. We must send an email. But But it really is super important. So I want to bring it top of mind. If you don't have one, maybe consider writing one. If you have one you haven't looked at, maybe look at it this week. And see what you can do with it.
1: Because let's talk about the importance of nurturing, because the nurture sequence is really a perfectly named term, right? There's a lot of things that I'm like, I don't know why we call it that. But nurture sequence makes a lot of sense to me. And it's titling in that you really are fostering this baby bird of interest, right? Like you are incubating and raising someone's trust and awareness of you. So why is that so important?
0: It's especially when you're doing it via email, when you're doing it in writing, it's your way of a new person who saw something that they liked about you, opted in for your list. It's then they go, now what? Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's time to build the relationship. It's time to, um, it's actually an opportunity for you to put your best stuff in front of them. And so one technique for creating that nurture sequence, if you don't want to look at a blank page and go, ah, write all these emails. Mm -hmm. If you're emailing your list regularly, like you should be, go look at that data, take your best performing emails of your nurture content and just put them in as your nurture sequence.
1: Done. Done. Grandpa's favorite acronym for longtime listeners of the show, APF. Right? If you already wrote something high performing, use it again. If you wrote something that's not so well performing, slim it down and use thumbnails. Like, you've got this, y'all. You've got this. But no, I love that. And one thing that you said that I think is so key because I can hear the like uh, stomach gurgling of listeners around the world. You said it's an opportunity to put your best stuff out there. People are so darn protective, understandably of putting their best stuff out there. They don't want to give away too much. They don't want to give people no reason to hire them. Do you have any tips, tricks, or reframes for people that are very sensitive about the amount they give away?
0: Here's the thing. If you're, especially if you're in the expert space, like Mm -hmm. you sell your expertise, coaching, consulting, whatever, there is never going to be a situation where you give away too much. Because when people come to work with you, um, first of all, you have blown them out of the water with how much you know. But are they going to go and implement it? Mm. Mm. Maybe. Mm. If you've got your really gung-ho folks. But most people, self-included, learn something, go take a bunch of notes. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Are we going to do that? You need help. And so even sharing your knowledge, there's no situation in which that will prevent someone from coming to to say, like, all right, I got it all. I'm good. They still need you.
1: They still need you. They still need you because they need that handheld component. Right. And especially when you're proving your expertise, you're probably not their first expert. They have likely explored this space before. So you need to take the opportunity to deepen their understanding of you by showing how you're competitively different and how your expertise varies, right? So the nurture sequence isn't just about proving yourself, it's about differentiating yourself.
0: And letting your personality come through. Because Mm. again, it's a really crowded space we're in. There's a lot of people doing what you do and putting a different spin on it. Um, Of course, no one is you, which means that your flavor of ice cream uh, as I call it, I always ask clients um, and people like, what's your favorite ice cream flavor and why? Mm-hmm. It is a great story, which almost always turns into a great email.
1: Yeah. Now I'm so, you're trying to answer that myself. Gosh. Well, I'm, I'm let's do it. What's your favorite ice cream flavor and why? My very favorite ice cream flavor. Jeez. I think I'm a standard mint chip. Oh, <gasps> Is that standard? Like, I think, no, it's not standard. Like, I I think a good, well-delivered, well-executed mint chip is a thing of beauty.
0: I agree. It is my favorite flavor, too.
1: Hey, there we go. And I've told this
0: story. First of all, I think, like, um I'm a redhead and I wear lots of green. And so my brand is basically mint chocolate chip. And, but, but. I tell this story about like, that is my favorite ice cream flavor. When I moved to Israel um, 14 years ago, you can't get it here
1: because Israelis
0: think that mint chocolate tastes like, why would you eat something that tastes like toothpaste? And by the way, that email is in my nurture sequence. So if you go and get on my list, you will get the whole explanation of my husband's reaction to my favorite ice cream flavor. (gasps) Oh, Okay, well. I had to learn how to make it myself from scratch.
1: When we're in Orlando, we are going to eat nothing but mint chip ice cream, like three meals a day. Um, you kind of get your fill and then we'll take a bunch um. of (laughs) lactate. Right. But mint chip is like what I love about mint chip is that it's a refreshing ice cream because it's got that like crisp, cold mintiness, but it's like. You could have it on a hot day. You could have it on a cold day. It's like universally lovely and always like crisp and fresh and surprising and soothing. And then the chip just gives you that little bit of crunch to remind you to like slow down and actually chew. Yeah. And the
0: story that I tell about it is it actually tastes like freedom to me. I just realized this because we had a Carvel around the corner from my house. Yeah. And... I grew up in South Florida. You don't walk anywhere. It is armpit hot and nothing <laughs> is walking distance. But the but the Carvel, like it's, it's very humid, like South Florida, but the Carvel was walking distance. So I remember being 10 years old and being allowed to walk to Carvel to get ice cream for the first time. Whoa. And of course it was mint chocolate chip. And so
1: I was like, oh. And when it's armpit hot and you're a 10-year-old and you walked there, that mint chip is going to feel like the most refreshing thing you could imagine.
0: Amazing. And so when you, I love asking this question because there's always a story or there's always a metaphor you can make with the ice cream itself. And it's like instant content.
1: (laughs) See, okay. You're bringing up a really amazing point that I try to stress all the time that I never, ever really nail, which is... There are emails that seem annoyingly off topic, right? And then, and those exist, right? And there are emails Mm -hmm. sometimes, even from email strategists and copywriters that I get that I open because they have some catchy gotcha subject line. And then I open it and I'm like, okay, but why did you send me this? And that's not what I'm talking about. What you're talking about is your life being content for your emails because you can always find a way to relate things back to your work. This freaking podcast proves that. We have pulled marketing and sales and business and branding and accounting lessons out of the weirdest stuff right? But we're drawing the line. We're drawing the comparison. So when you're saying, you know, think about your favorite ice cream. Think about your favorite ice cream as a metaphor. Think about your favorite ice cream as a prompt. You're not just emailing me to be like, my favorite ice cream is mint chip. What's yours? Interesting choice. How you how you house that. Right. But I think some people are like, oh, I could just email whatever I want. And other people are like, if it's not the most literal application of my work, I can't do it. There's so much gooey goodness in between there. Right. So how do we know when something is ripe to be converted to content and when something is just not yet cooked enough to come in?
0: First of all, I believe that anything you can write an email about anything. And I've done it. I've Written emails for the same product back in in my early days as a writer, I used to write three emails a week for the same product, and I did that for five years. Mm-hmm. You have to get really, really creative,
1: yeah, you gotta diversify.
0: God, that's a lot of emails. You can turn anything into an email. The key is following the right structure first okay. of all, using good writing techniques, which I call kind of like um the Hollywood the hollywood intro where you sort of start in the middle of the story, grab someone yeah. in and then be like, yeah, this is actually what it's all about, like a movie that starts in the middle of the action and making sure that the point, the the lesson, the takeaway is something that matters to your reader, matters to your audience. You got to have a takeaway, y'all. You can make any story, whether it's compelling story writing, a uh, great metaphor, you know, sexy language, whatever it is that that you're doing in your email, if the takeaway is not there, people are going to read it and go, well, OK, why?
1: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I feel the same way about memoirs. I have made so many freaking enemies in the personal development space because everybody wants to write their memoir. And I'm like, look, I don't care if you write a memoir, but I'd rather you write a self-help book based on your own story that has a dang takeaway. right?" Like unless you're one of the like top 0.5 most interesting people on the planet i'm probably not going to read a whole book of your life story i'd rather watch a documentary but if you can give me a takeaway something i can apply something i can learn from something that'll shorten my learning curve i'm all in
0: mm-hmm. and this is actually it's applicable right right and this is one of the reasons like the details and this is why i wanted to talk about outlander can we segue Uh-oh. into outlander Uh-oh. Oh, of course we can segue into Outlander. Okay, so I am a big fan of the books. Full disclosure, I have not seen all of the show. I tend to, I started reading at the age of three, and so I'm a very fast reader. Um, The more pages, the better, which is what attracted me to the books in the first place, because there are a lot of pages
1: yeah, they're beefy. They are beefy, beefy books. And I love that about them because
0: then it takes me a little while to get through them and I get to be in the story longer. Yeah. but yeah. what I what I think uh, is so cool about them is that there's a lot of everyday life in those books. Yeah, there's a lot of other stuff that's happening. but there's, right. a, there's lot a lot of, of like everyday and- details that are happening. That are just
1: working. There's in. a lot of cooking. Uh-huh. There's a lot of cooking. And diaper changes. In those books. And And diaper changes and cleaning. Like, when's the last time you read a book where they actually sweep the floor? Like, thank you. Thank you for that slice of reality. you're
0: still reading. You're still... It's still really compelling. And so that's just an example of how the way that you tell the story and that these small details can be really interesting, can be really important. And so I, I don't want to... I don't want someone to walk away with like, oh, I have to have an amazing takeaway to be able to write an email. It takes practice. You do probably have something incredible to say. It's just a muscle to, to practice to make those connections.
1: Yeah, because that's where the real like the relatability comes in, especially if someone is very, very different from you, right? Because we're all trying to show not sameness, but connection.
0: Yes. And the other piece that I, when I talk about, um, when I teach my email framework, the the thing that I tell people to do before they write is GTF. Okay. Uh, G stands for goal, not GTFO, GTF.
1: (laughs) GTF, goal.
0: Goal, T is for takeaway. And F is for feeling you know, before you even write the email, you put down, okay, where do I, where am I going with this? What is the call to action? What is the goal of this email? What takeaway do I want someone to have? What is the lesson? What's the, what's the value and what do I want them to feel when they're reading it? And that, that last part I think is something a lot of people forget to do.
1: Yes. 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 I try to ask every podcast host that has me on their show, how they want their listeners to feel um, at the end of the episode or throughout the episode, because I say the same stuff over and over and over and over and over again, much like writing three product emails a week for the same product for five years, right? Like I have my greatest hits. However, how I relate to those greatest hits, how I explain them, how I ground them in, uh, teaching or application or story or, you know, what language I use. Am I tough love? Am I more motivational? Like I have so much more of a playground than I allow myself. If I focus on how I want and the host wants people to feel right. So I think that is so totally true because A, I think people focus maybe on the goal sometimes. They're like, why am I writing this? And that's about as far as they go. They don't necessarily attach the takeaway as we've already discussed. And because there's no takeaway, we certainly don't focus on the feeling because normally if we're giving a great takeaway, what we want them to do is change something or do something. Yep. Right. So what we want them to feel is motivated, empowered over inertia, over the hump, moving forward right? We want to have that epiphany feeling. So what are some of the feelings that you think uh, if people are like, I don't know what the heck I want them to feel. Hmm. What are some of the feelings that you think make really strong or compelling emails?
0: Uh, Okay. So motivation is one for sure. I -hmm. want to feel like, oh yes, I can definitely do this. Uh, Desire is another. I want this. Ooh, I am excited to find out more about this curiosity so like oh all right i don't know what's behind this link over here but i would like to find out uh because you sold it to me in the email um and left strategic gaps fomo's another one like Mm -hmm. this thing is happening and all the cool kids are gonna be there
1: and if you don't come sorry about you connection so
0: some emails are just about about Relating to someone else, they feel like, oh, I know, I know more about who you are now. Mm-hmm. I get this. They want to feel. And that's
1: again where the sweeping the floor, changing the diapers, you know, patching a hole in the roof, Outlander stuff comes in. It's like we do want to see that stuff. Yeah. Not only that stuff, but we do want to see it. Because these people need to feel real to us. How come nobody ever goes to the bathroom in movies or on TV? Like, I don't need to see them go to the bathroom, but it would be really, really nice if someone would be like, hold on a sec, I gotta pee.
0: I can't, I, I've got four kids. So whenever there is a birth scene in a movie, I'm just like, no, no, th- no, <laughs> that's not how this works. Without going too far into detail, but that's another pet peeve because it's not real.
1: Right, it's not real. And it pulls you out of the narrative. It pulls you out of the story when you're like, wait, something's not right here. Even if you can't consciously figure out what that is. If I'm watching, you know, 12 Angry Men, which takes place in one room, and at no point does anyone get up to pee and they've been there for two days, I'm going to be like, I'm going to start worrying about these men's bladders. That's not the point of 12 Angry Men, y'all. No, and
0: I think with movies and, you know, there's some suspension of reality that happens that we've taught ourselves, like, uh, to just set aside that so we can enjoy the movie. But when a show, a book, a movie manages to get that realism in there, I think we notice. And I think
1: we appreciate it. Yeah, especially because the majority of our listeners and you and me are not selling fiction. We're selling services. We're selling programming. We're selling things based on this reality. Right. So we don't have uh, the gifts of fiction to kind of hide or cloak us. We don't have as much suspension of disbelief. We're saying, I'm a real person. This is my real life. And this is how it pertains to your real life. So it's not that suspension of disbelief doesn't ever happen and that people are taking a, you know, a magnifying glass to your emails to see how often you pee. That's not what I'm saying, y'all but at the same point we do want to show the truth of it
0: yeah the the the, the good the good the bad and the sometimes ugly but yeah that said that's not and th- this is where i talk about this difference between story and narrative because everyone's like oh tell stories tell stories and i think people hear that and they go all right well then then this happened and then this happened and then uh, and they go very linear, linearly through the story.
1: Once upon a time, there was a little girl. She lived in a house. She had a sister. See her sister,
0: right? Like, no. And what you're actually crafting is a narrative. And a narrative has a very specific structure to it. So you can tell your stories. Your stories will all fit into this narrative framework. I, I, I say it's like the only copy framework you'll ever need. Yeah. Problem, story, discovery, solution. Y'all hear that? So there's, there's lots of frameworks out there. There's the ones that people like, this is the one that, this is the one that I teach. You always have to start with, with where they are, where, yeah. what is the problem? What does it look like? Can you describe it to them better than they can themselves? Like, oh,
1: how do you know? Exactly. Cause that's how eventually you're going to stair step into your paid offerings. I understand the problem that you are facing and let me show you how to get out of it before we share or sell the solution. We have to get them aware of the fact that we understand the problem or to illuminate something about the problem that they're currently in. Right.
0: Well, that's the, that's the discovery step. So first is like, I get it. This is, this is what life looks like now. And when you do that to the level of detail and nuance that you really can, because a lot of people, um, I see a lot of the copy that's pretty surface level and, and they're not really digging into the core emotions. And when you do people go, Oh, okay. This person gets me and they automatically make that, that next leap in their brain to thinking, okay, maybe if they got the problem so well, maybe they have the solution. Yes. Yes. And so then you tell your story, you say, I get it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: This is how I understand what's going on. It's either because I've been there before or because I've done it. I've helped other people out of it. Yeah. Again and again and again.
1: And again and again and again and again.
0: Here. And then the discovery piece is here is what you do not yet understand. Mm-hmm. And then you blow their minds.
1: And then you blow their freaking brain stems, y'all. Just blow them out of the water.
0: And then that, that, the reaction that you want is, <gasps>
1: oh, mm-hmm. the light bulb. We want that light bulb above the head
0: and once that moment had this is why it has not worked okay so now what do i do right. now that they know now you have the curse of knowledge you actually have to do something about it right okay so what do i do there's your solution
1: this is also an absolutely gorgeous framework for sales pages
0: i have a sales page course where i teach you exactly how to do it
1: hey i mean go grab that y'all right now right but it's got a flow we've got a flow from problem to possibility, to solution, right? And how we do that is through that discovery phase. How we do that is by showing them that we know where they are. Now, you have used this word so many times this episode, and I'm loving it. And I think there's also a fun little outlander tie-in here. You keep talking about structure. And a lot of people rebel against structure because they think that structure is too strict. I always think of structure as, especially in writing, as a recipe, right? It's guidelines and firm ones, but there's still all kinds of ways that you can put your own spin on it. So you and I have previously disclosed to each other that we are beautiful, brilliant women who read trashy, trashy books. Uh, And I love my trashy books. And I will also argue that a lot of modern, although not necessarily contemporary, but a lot of recently written post-Bodice Ripper era romance is actually a very feminist art form uh, because Uh it puts the female, often protagonist, in the middle of it and makes her live her own life and make her own choices, right? Especially in historicals. But the reason I bring this up is that romance has very strict... Genre requirements. One of them being if it doesn't have an HEA, if it doesn't have a happily ever after, it's not a romance. And as such, how you get there though can change, right? Like there's always got to be person meets person. They can't be together right away or there would be no need for the plot. So there has to be some kind of misunderstanding or conflict unfolding of that. I mean, it's Pride and Prejudice 101 right? Regurgitated Mm -hmm. over and over with smutty bits thrown in. So what do you say to people that kind of rebel or uh, feel really resistant to obey or embrace structure?
0: Hmm. It's a really good question. And the the idea of, um, I have a degree in English literature, so I'm a little bit of a nerd when it comes to this stuff. And th- that is the reason that I don't read literature and business books anymore. And I just because that, you know, I did enough of that. Like, OK, Chaucer, <laughs> you can sit on my shelf.
1: OK, Chaucer, you can be on my show shelf. Like people can come over and see you and be like, wow, Chaucer. And that's your role now.
0: Right. I have the all those Norton anthologies and they sit in the living room, <laughs> the living room shelf. People go, oh, um, they don't actually because they're Israelis and they don't fully appreciate this. But. That said, the idea of structure, and this is where this convergence of creativity Mm -hmm. comes in. People are like, oh, I have to be so creative to be a copywriter. I have to be creative to write copy. And there is some element of creativity to it. But within that, there is also a lot of structure. And the way that I describe it is kind of like building a bridge. Mm
1: -hmm. So you're
0: building a bridge from where your ideal audience is right now to where you want them to be which is credit card in hand going please take my money yeah. right uh happy customers who come back again and again and that you are not pushing them across that bridge your goal is to build it show them what's on the other side and make it so easy for them to walk across and if you are missing a plank in that bridge what's going to happen
1: they're going to fall in the river yeah they're going to fall right in the river so
0: that is how I, I talk about structure. It's about making sure that all your planks in the right pa- are in the right place. They can be wood, they can be painted purple, they can be whatever you want them to be.
1: Right, you can have five or 50 depending on how much of something you need to create, but they have to be in the right order and they have to be evenly spaced.
0: And the structures actually allow you the freedom to be more creative. It's that sitting in front of a blank page or a blank canvas going, I can paint anything. I don't know whereas if somebody gives you a prompt and I've done this in workshops with people or I've I've had a little baggy of different words
1: mm-hmm.
0: random words mm-hmm. the beatles <laughs> submarines deep sea diving random <laughs> random things and you have to go write an email about it in 20 minutes <laughs> You would not believe the amazing, amazing copy that comes out of that exercise because you have given someone a constraint. And so structure is actually a way to make it easier, a way to free your brain up to be creative.
1: Y'all hear that? Structure frees your brain. It doesn't bind you. It frees your brain because you know what criterion you have to fit and you know what deliverables you have to deliver and you know how you're going to get from point a to point z good for you like and within
0: that you can be as creative as you want to be and of course n- not all structure is going to fit each thing sometimes you need to shift a little bit in terms of the where you if you're looking at a sales page like oh no i think this section needs to go here this time there's a lot of ways to get there but if you are working with no structure nothing to begin with, you're just making it harder for yourself.
1: Yes, infinitely harder. Because how are you you know when you've met your goals? You won't. You won't.
0: Now, let's differentiate structure from templates. Okay. For a sec.
1: Yes, please.
0: Because it depends, of course, where you're getting your templates from and what kind of templates they are. But in most cases, and I've seen a lot of them, they are actually going to give you too much restriction mm-hmm. to be able to have like there's a balance of right of structure right there's fill in this blank over here with a benefit yes right fill in this blank with a benefit or describe your describe your person's problem using six to eight points which one gives you more flexibility
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Right. And which one is not going to sound like what everybody else is doing.
1: Right. Which one isn't going to be like, oh, it's this email that somebody must be selling as a swipe. Right. I mean, ugh, God, I could do a whole episode about swipe files, but you know what? It's fine. Um, You know, also one thing that I think is really important in structure and one thing we can also pull out of Outlander, specifically the books, is that that's a series. Right. And so we're talking about nurture sequences today. And one of the most important functions of an email sequence is to make sure that people feel, there's feeling again, motivated to open the next dang email. So is there something we can learn from book series like Outlander to show us, you know, should we be using things like cliffhangers? Should we be including next up? Should we, you know, what can we do? What can we learn from serial books? about writing serial emails?
0: I think all of those techniques are useful, right? Open loops, cliffhangers, coming up, stay tuned for. But I think the most compelling reason and the reason that there are nine Outlander books and all kinds of offshoots and and people keep reading them is because the characters are just so darn likable. Yeah. And because you want to be in the world. You want to be in that world because it is so detailed. Mm -hmm. And so in many cases, realistic to the level of like, these are real human things that are happening. Mm -hmm. And so when you have emails that are full of real human things happening, people will want to read the next one.
1: Yeah. And Outlander is also a mashup of two very different worlds. Right. So and two very different cultures and two very different times and two very different worlds with these same characters over and over throughout. Right. So what about when you are dealing with a dichotomy of your own, maybe two different segments of the same audience or two parallel offers or two calls to action you're driving? Like, how do we maintain that balance? Should we be doing two at once? Should we really be focusing on 1740 over 1945, what should we do?
0: Um, I think that's where, and this is, you know, my my background working with Ryan Levesque is where segmentation comes in. Yep. And where you can give your audience the ability to choose their own adventure. You ask them what they want and then give it to them, right? And so in the beginning of your nurture sequence, you can say, Like, which one of these best describes you? As someone is opting into your list, you can have one question that says, which one of these best describes you, and give them four options based on what you know about your market. And then they choose, and then they get tagged, and then they have a sequence that is just for them. And this is really good when you do have, you know that you have different segments of your audience, who are maybe at different levels of business, who are maybe um, different in different niches, and then the more you do that, obviously it adds complications. You don't want to overdo it. But when it's done strategically, you can get very, very specific in them, the way that you talk to them. And it creates more of that oh, this person gets me.
1: Yeah. This person gets me and only me. I would love that. So many times, but not in Outlander, although I have not read all nine books. But um, sometimes when things have like parallel worlds or dueling timelines or something like that, I find myself loving one timeline and not the other. Like I read this book, gosh, what was it called? The Lost Apothecary. And it was like a new discovering old, but they're showing us the old. And I didn't really care for the new, but I loved the old. So if someone had Ryan Levesque asked me if I would like a version of only the old stuff, that's the opt-in I would have taken. I would write yeah. a whole book just of the old stuff, but nobody asked me. Nobody is segmenting novels for me, which is why I guess it's great that we're creating emails, right? (laughs) For sure. For sure. And
0: that thing about having two timelines and and Claire, so we're going to get into the books for a second. Claire comes into the the 18th century from, you know, post-World War II, and she has this curse of knowledge. Mm-hmm. she knows some of what's going to happen. She's not the best student of history. So she doesn't know all the details, but right. you know, okay, there's a war coming and, right. or you know what germs are and the people around you have no idea.
1: Right. You know why you need to boil water from the river.
0: Right. <laughs> and so how do you explain germs? And there's this scene in one of the books where, where she's explaining what a germ is to Jamie. And he's like, hmm, how do you explain <laughs> that to somebody who has no idea? How do you, and relating it back to business, how do you translate what you do for people just at the beginning of the journey in a way that they can understand? You have the, the. I feel like sometimes we're in this place of unconscious competence. We know our stuff.
1: Yeah. And
0: finding ways to explain it, finding ways to explain germs in the in the 18th century. Oh my gosh.
1: I think that's so huge because for her, for Claire, it's so basic. Yeah, it's like, clearly, we need to boil this. Cover your mouth when you cough and boil stuff and wash your hands. But, you know, it, I love that idea of that curse of knowledge because that's so totally true. And I see that a lot in mostly, I mean, I see it all kinds of stuff, any kind of technical jargon or startup-y language or buzzwords or whatever, but especially my friends and clients in the woo woo community have a tendency to use these big like chakra activation and your chi and your this and your that and your human design and your blah 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 and your optimization awakening and the optimization of the awakening Inner of knowing. the it, right and I'm like y'all that's not actually I know that you know what that means. And I know that you want your ideal person to know what that means, but they might need some definitions and they might need a little bit more nurturing because it seems so simplistic to you, but Jamie doesn't know what a germ is.
0: Right. And that is where stories, metaphors, taking your ice cream story and turning it into an explanation of yeah. what, um, what chakras are. Why not? Right. Someone Why do not? this, please. And, yeah, no kidding. Give me a glossary. I would love that. And then it just makes, it It allows you to access something that people can relate and mm-hmm. take these concepts that I think people assume meanings of, but everybody assumes something different. Yeah. And the, these these esoteric concepts and really bring them down to earth and ground them in something that is also sticky and memorable.
1: Yeah, totally. Ice
0: cream is sticky.
1: Ice cream is sticky, memorable, and. Delicious. What else? Amen. What else have I, I asked you about Outlander? Okay, so
0: Claire, again, coming into the 18th century where the role of women, uh, it was a little bit different. A little bit different. A little. You know, <laughs> and, and she is gets a reputation very quickly for speaking her mind. Mm-hmm. And people go, You're not like other women here. You actually say what you think. I like that the scene in the beginning where she's in the hunt, she's cursing and the the, the guys are all going like,
1: (gasps) who are
0: you? Right. And speaking your mind, standing out in a situation where it may be easier to blend in. I think there's a lesson there.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lesson in your own life. You moved to Israel from Florida. Like, that alone is enough of a shift. I'm sure there were many, 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 many things that you had to get used to and that Israel had to get used to when it comes to you. I miss Target. Yeah. All my friends in Israel miss Target. So shout out Target and also find a way to get into Israel. You're dearly wanted. Uh, And mint chip ice cream.
0: Yes. Yes, that too. Although I have my trusty ice cream maker now.
1: There you go. It's actually
0: surprisingly easy.
1: Really? Yeah. Huh. All right, everybody. Your homework this week is to make ice cream. No, just kidding. It's not. But your homework this week is to think about your favorite ice cream. At least that's going to be part of it. Right. But I think that's huge is, you know, and change is scary. And I think sometimes when we're writing these emails and we're promising these great big life altering changes, we lose track of the site that the problem is scary and that that also doesn't mean that the solution isn't also scary. Yes. Right? Like changing something, getting over the hump, getting what you want, looking at yourself in the mirror, understanding your past mistakes and correcting them or missteps and correcting them, challenging yourself. All of these things are scary. Right. So that's another reason why we can't just jump to the solution because we think it's so much easier to talk about than the pain point that can inflict pain if we rush too quickly to the end goal. Like Claire has to struggle to learn how to live between these worlds. Claire and Jamie have to get to know each other after they're married. Like, you know, there's a struggle here. There is a mountain to climb here. We can't just have Claire go back in time and suddenly be like, ah, Feudal life. This works so beautifully for me. And yes, by all means, I will stop speaking until spoken to and I will do nothing but make babies. Sure. Like, no, that's painful. That's challenging. That's change. Right? Like, as much as you wanted to move to Israel, I'm sure parts of it were tough. But you decide that you want to go back and meet an author. From your shelf, not Chaucer, mm-hmm. not Chaucer, not Chaucer. But you're going to go back and you're going to have a discussion about writing with a writer and co-create something with a writer from history. Who are you co-creating with?
0: I mean, I feel like the the answer is clear, Diana, and she's still she's still around. So hey, if you're listening to this,
1: if you're listening, Book Ten could be right now. Imagine, amazing. All right. And what is the best way for our listeners who need you for their emails, for their projects, for their nine book anthologies? What's the best way for them to start a conversation with you?
0: So the first thing is you should go and get my 30 subject line shortcuts because we talked about structure and we talked about frameworks and those do not, we won't give you a template. We will, will give you structures and ideas to work in, um, dwcopy.com slash subject lines, Go get it, and then you will get my emails, and you can read all about why my husband thinks mint chocolate chip tastes like toothpaste, the wild boars in my front yard, and all kinds of other adventures. And then once you do, let me know that you've got it by sending me a DM on Instagram.
1: And what's your Instagram?
0: At Danielle K. W-E-I-L.
1: Phenomenal. Y'all, go get that subject guide. I'm going to get it right now. Because if you're on my mailing list, you know that mine have not really been up to snuff lately, but that's why I have a podcast so I can meet people who tell me to fix it. Danielle, it has been an absolute delight having you here sharing time and sharing space with me on this plane. I'm so glad we didn't have to go back to feudal times to get it done. Me too. Thank you for being my guest today. Thank you for having me. Y'all, I will be back in just a second with my final thoughts and your homework for the week. So go grab a cup of your favorite ice cream and come right back. Well, hey there. This week, I want to throw down a challenge instead of homework. You are all cordially invited to join the Danielle Weil Honorary Ice Cream Buffet of Copywriting, which you can tell that I named and not her because she would have come up with something clever and probably an acronym with double meaning. But you know what? I digress. I got to witness Danielle ask her ice cream question over and over and listen to the answers in real time all over PodFest. Shout out if you're one of the people I forced her to ask. Danielle asked all kinds of people with all kinds of different podcasts and every single time two identical things happened. Number one, just thinking about ice cream lit up every single person and conversation. And number two, every answer we were given was shockingly deep and surprisingly meaningful to the person. It just clicks. You find something resonant and you double down. So now I'm gonna steal her sequence, paraphrase it and turn it back on you so you can do the same. What is your favorite ice cream? What specifically do you love about it? Why is it your favorite? Maybe it's a memory. Maybe it's a aspect of that ice cream. How is your company, your work, or the value you provide just like that ice cream? And how can you directly, literally communicate this to your client in copy? I got a head start, so I'll go first. I love mint chip, as I already disclosed. I love that the mint adds a whole new layer of crispness to the cold sensation, and the chip forces you to chew instead of just gulping it down. It's my job to amplify people's resonance so that they can double down on how they want people to feel. And I'm also crunchy, so you can't ignore me. Basically, I'm the chips. Your turn. Hey, thanks for listening. If this episode kept you laughing and learning, I have two requests for you. First, make sure you hit that subscribe or follow button depending on your platform so you never miss an episode. And also, more importantly, if you are looking for support, inspiration, networking, collaborations, or just a chance to hang out with me, Annie P. Ruggles, and our fantastic guests make sure that you are a member of our LinkedIn community, The Legitimati. It is a weird and wonderful place. I can't even believe it's on LinkedIn. And we want you there. You'll find the link in the show notes. Big shout out, as always, to the fabulous dudes who helped me make this show. My producer and editor, Andrew Sims of Hypable Impact. My theme composer, Riley Horbacio. And my show art creator, Francois Vigno. See you next time.